So you know in the Spice Girls song, Wannabe, the one where Scary Spice goes, well, tell me what you want, what I really, really want. And then Ginger Spice goes, well, I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. And then it builds and they do it again. And they really, really, really want to zig a zig ah. And it's like a, it's like a made up Spice Girls word. Well, fun fact, that Spice Girls word actually means you should support Ontario Loud on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Ontario Loud or Ontario and hit the Patreon link. You can support us for less than the price of a cup of coffee. Also kind of weird. I was watching that video recently and it sort of opens up with the Spice Girls stealing a hat from what seems like a homeless person. Like, check your privilege, Spice Girls. You're rich. You can afford a hat on the show. Welcome to Ontario Lab, the show about politics, public policy, and current affairs had between recovering political staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin, and today we're going to be checking in on autism policy in Ontario, and specifically where the Ford government is at with supports for families who look after kids with some of the highest and most intensive special needs. There are an estimated 100,000 children with autism in Ontario, and it's estimated that about 1 in 66 children in Ontario receive an autism diagnosis each year. Typically, these children are served by the Ontario Autism Program, which provides support for behavioral services and therapies for children with autism needs. Listeners might be familiar with some of the uproar caused by Conservative Minister Lisa McLeod's announcement of the changes to the autism program last year, where the PCs moved from a program based on the needs of individual applicants to one based on family income and the child's age. The logic claimed at the time was that due to funding limitations, there was a significant waiting list to actually receive services under the former program. And in the new program, funding would be allocated to families immediately based on their income. But the catch is that the checks people would receive would be substantially smaller. It's important to understand that autism therapies, what the money actually pays for, are largely one-on-one supports with professionals, and they are extremely expensive. They can range anywhere from $50,000 to over $100,000 per year, sometimes substantially over $100,000 per year or more. The conservative program delivered a maximum of $20,000 annually to a lifetime maximum of $140,000, so not even really coming close to scratching the surface. This, of course, was not very well received, and families and parents of children receiving autism treatment now suddenly faced with staggering bills to pay, organized and pushed back to great effect, causing the Ford government to double the funding for the program and promise to move toward a need-based system, with an expert advisory panel being tasked to tell them how to do that. I'm so thrilled to have some of those parents with us today on the line. Uh, Bruce McIntosh is the former president of the Ontario Autism Coalition and former staffer to progressive conservative MPP Amy Fee. Bruce notably resigned over the Ford government's handling of the autism file, and we're so thrilled to have him. Jamie Santana is a certified behavior analyst who works in Woodbridge. And and Leah Kochmerich is the parent of two preschool children, one neurotypical and one with autism spectrum disorder, who works with adults and youth living with developmental disabilities. Folks, welcome to the pod. Thank you for having us. Um, So I want to start by acknowledging that the Ford government's changes were not the first time parents with autism have found themselves having to organize and protest for their kids. The Liberals introduced a program that cut off some therapies at age six, which led to a similar and very robust organizing effort to, I guess, get the program to where it was before the Ford government came in. So I want to start sort of big picture and ask you, just as folks involved in this issue, what is it about it? What is it about this issue you think people, and particularly people in government, uh, haven't understood well enough? Uh, I think this time, 
when compared to 2016, the public support has has increased uh, a bit. People in the general population outside of the community, the autism community, are a lot more educated and informed on the topic, especially given that the incidence in, of diagnoses of autism has continues to increase. But sadly, there's still the people that kind of take the your kid, your responsibility approach, right? Which is sad. People fail to understand that the majority of barriers faced by people living on the spectrum are caused by that type of failure to accept them into the community. When it comes to the government, I think officials have failed to understand that the funding is is more than just a dollar sign and a number on a budget. It's people's lives. We're talking about people's lives here. I work with with people on the spectrum every day. And I see daily the things that they're capable and able to do, their potential. And all they need is a little support and a little adaptation of the tasks or or their environment. I think adequate teaching is important to attain and retain their skills as well. Although the science tells us that involvement in therapy, which is scientifically based at an early age, leads to better outcomes. It doesn't only mean that when they're five or when they're six is when it works the best, right? It works throughout their lifespan. It's just you have better outcomes in general and long lasting outcomes when they're younger. I think if, if I can just jump in following up on Jamie, that what, what Jamie said about the dollar sign is, is an important point because it represents on the part of just about every government we've had to go to battle against, it represents short-term thinking. Effective supports for people on the spectrum, if they're delivered effectively and early, it lowers the costs later in life by quite literally millions of dollars per person. And so that notion, in fact, there was a a Senate report issued 11 or 12 years ago that was called pay now or pay later. But paying later means a much, much bigger cost. Trouble is that governments tend to think in very short terms, as in four years until the next election, and they don't usually take the long view. The other difficulty there is that there's a political problem for the government that goes along beside the issue of supporting people with autism, and that is the waitlist number. Mm-hmm. I have chased cabinet ministers off of uh, live broadcasts. I have I have hounded these people for years because despite their efforts, that waitlist number has always gone up, and that scares them because it's it's a hard and fast number that demonstrates very clearly repeated failure. That was what I think motivated the previous minister to try to put an argument out there that this is what she was trying to fix, but it didn't. Uh, it didn't work because she was she was going with that one size fits all and focusing only on on the waitlist number without actually trying to do an effective job with the money she had available. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and I, I I think that's a good segue. I mean, the Ford government now, by its own admission, has made a mess of its first attempt through the program uh, overhaul. It was probably one of the main factors that led to Minister Lisa McLeod being moved out. Uh, one of the things we're hearing from them now uh, repeatedly whenever they're asked about this is that they've doubled the funding, they're going back <laughs> to the drawing board, yeah. families oh, are they have. Yeah. <laughs> Hearing yeah, lots so, of uh, lots of trust in that and families will continue to receive support while they figure out next steps. And so I, I guess just for, for you guys, how does that from uh, if, if you're a person who's not enmeshed in the day to day of this issue, you could look at that and say, OK, like they're, they're fixing it. But what, what's really going on here? Um, well, I'll start with the six hundred million dollars because it's a point of contention. Mm-hmm. They say it's there, but. You know, since they've been promising, which was March 26th, they said first time 600 million, doubling the funding. But we've had the 
um, the Ontario budget since then. We've had the expenditure report since then, and we've had first quarter finances since then. And the only thing that they've shown is an increase of $10 million from the liberal projections of last year or two years ago. Um, but it's very hard to keep the public who are not enmeshed in this and the day-to-day kind of thing to say, look at all the, the paperwork, the files behind it. It's not there. They just hear, well, $600 million. Of course, those parents should be happy about it. Fabulous. Moving on, you know, because it doesn't affect their lives as much as affects ours. You haven't seen that impact sort of how you interact with the supports yet. Is that fair to say? Yeah. As far as their announcement on February 6th, all mm-hmm. supports for my family have gone away. They could tell me there's $100 billion, but it's not affecting my life because it's not here. I don't see it. Yeah. This this is this is the problem, Chris, that the what parents are experiencing on the ground is exactly the opposite of what the government is trying to persuade people, what their their version of reality is. We have a situation where they are persisting in issuing these woefully inadequate childhood budgets. This was the previous minister's idea. You know, 5000 a year, up to 20000 a year for the youngest kids. This, this comes nowhere close to paying for the services that are required. They're continuing this. They have put yet another Band-Aid on the kids who were in service, they've they've given them another six-month extension. But that's coming out of the budget that was already there, that $321 million that was there before this alleged increase. Now, if in fact there was an increase, they could have doubled the number of kids that were getting actually needs-based therapy, which is what the program was before Ford came to power. That certainly hasn't happened. In fact, we're, we're seeing kids being, you know, let down repeatedly. And here's the other problem. The longer they wait, if in fact, if there really is an extra $300 million there, the longer they wait to start flowing that money out to families, well, the less of it they're going to have to spend by the end of this fiscal year. I have a funny feeling that part of what they're going to try and tell everyone next spring that, oh, what good people are we and we've we've balanced the budget and we've trimmed all this spending is going to come because announced money didn't move. And that's that's all just one big fiction. Last June, we were we were hearing a lot about this six million dollar man with Hydro One. Right now, I think what we're dealing with is a six hundred million dollar lie. Like Bruce said as well, the money that is being dispersed is I don't even know if to call that a bandaid. I don't even know what to call it. I mean, some families have to spend upwards of eighty thousand dollars a year for support for their kids. So even if you are receiving the top end, that's a quarter of what your kid actually needs, right? And right. where where is your average family getting $60,000 from? And we're not talking about an option. We're not talking about like you're choosing between private school and public school. We're talking about services that could impact the trajectory of this person's life. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you a quick story, Chris, just to, just to put that in, in real human terms. I deal with a lot of families. I've We have a pretty large organization, 8,000 people over 8,000 in our Facebook group. We've got more on Twitter and more on our email list. So I talk to an awful lot of families, but one of the best examples I can think of 
is a boy out in Northumberland County. He is eight years old. Didn't speak a word in his life. Nonverbal until just around last Christmas. I remember his mom saying to me that she thought it was like the best Christmas gift that you could get that her son was starting to talk. And his program costs about $60,000 a year. Now, I don't think you can put a price on the ability to communicate, but that's the cost of his program. Because he is eight years old, if he cuts over to a childhood budget, the most he will possibly get is 5000 a year. The mom is a single mother. She, Because of her son's high needs, she is not able to hold down a full-time job. She's living at home with her parents. And there's absolutely no way she's going to come up with $55,000. Like that's a boy whose life is ahead of him. And the prospect goes one way if he gets funding and another way if he doesn't. That's what we're talking about here. It's human dignity. It's not a dollar sign. Absolutely. I'm reminded of some of the worst instincts of the liberal government and actually some of the PC uh, communications about this in that where, you know, we would sort of tell people, you know, we're, oh, don't worry, we're investing this much money in it. But if they're not feeling the impact of that money in a way that makes sense to them, then it's like, what good is that? I want to dive a little bit more into the the impact of the changes because it, it's been really, uh, we've had a set of changes introduced and then changes to the changes. And now perhaps we're even having changes to the changes to the changes. I'm curious, maybe Jamie, starting with you, from the service provider community, what impact is this just sort of turbulent and uncertainty having on the the community of people who serve children with special needs? Where to begin there? Uh, It's kind of a loaded question. (laughs) Um, The last eight months, and I honestly can't even believe that it's been eight months. I can't believe we've been going at it for three quarters of a year already. It's t- I can't believe it's taken that long, you know. The last eight months have, have been devastating to service providers. And I think devastating is, is an understatement as well. Within a month of the announcement, we were notified of 300 people being laid off or losing their jobs from one of Ontario's largest regional service provider. And that's a huge hit. Usually those, those staff are, most of them are work one-to-one with, with learners. So if 300 people lost their job, that's 300 kids who won't be able to get services, right? That is an unbelievably high number. It has, and it hasn't stopped there. It, it just continues to rack up. The last time I checked, and it was a couple months ago, something like 700 people all over Ontario were losing their jobs in the field of ABA alone. That's one specific type of therapy, right? 700 yeah. people in one field. That's a that's that's a huge number, and that's not counting the teachers. That's not counting other people that support. It's it's literally just ABA service providers. It, it hasn't allowed us to plan effectively for our learners, if we're being honest. When the changes came up, we were told, all right, as of the end of the budgets, we're transitioning to this. And then we made some noise and parents did a wonderful job at doing that. And then they're like, all right, you guys are going to get an additional three months. So we're like, okay, now we got three months to make sure we get these learners ready to go to school because their parents are not going to be able to afford this. And then parents mm-hmm. made even more noise and made, did an even better job. And then we got an additional six months. And then we were like, all right, now we have some breathing room. But, you know, we still don't know what's going to happen after the six months. Are we going to get another extension? Is a, is a good plan going to come into effect before that? We don't know where, where we're headed. So, again, we're focusing on getting these kids ready for school. And that sometimes was at the sacrifice of focusing on other things, right? So while we were focusing on communication and mm-hmm. toileting with them, for example, 
we could have been also working on like your letters and but because we didn't know how much time we actually had we couldn't focus on those secondary skills because it's more important for a kid to go to the bathroom on their own and be able to tell somebody what's going on with them than it is for them to know a letter in the grand scheme of things that was kind of where we were thinking so it's chaotic it's the uncertainty with the uncertainty we can't plan effectively it's really stressful on the staff and, and on the learners. And it's not setting us, the service providers, or the learner for success. What we don't know is when the funds will actually stop flowing. We don't know if we're going to have the same number of clients registered in the next five months. We don't know if people will be needing the same number of staff. Do we need to lay off some staff? Do we need to hire staff because more will be coming in? How many people do we need to lay off if we need to lay off? It's chaos. It's it's utter chaos. It's the worst way to approach a policy change, especially one that was initiated to improve the life of those who it's supposed to be supporting. Bruce, you helped lead the movement uh, that over the course of the liberal government got it to change course, uh, move to a needs-based model. Um, there's a lot of advocacy that happened uh, to sort of get the program to the point that it was. You then worked uh, in the Ford government, uh, so got, I think got to see uh, a little bit more of an insider perspective than uh, than most people get to, uh, and then resigned ultimately because of the the changes, how the changes were rolled out. So I'm just curious from for your perspective, you know, what was it like working in government while this happened? How did you find out about how the uh, how this went from the outside it's 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 obviously a little bit of a head scratcher so i'm wondering if you see if you can take us sort of behind the curtain a little bit well i'll, I'll do my best chris but you the first thing i need to tell you up front is that mm. um i was not minister's office staff but i worked for amy in her capacity as and the mpp for kitchener south Espeler. I did not work for her in her capacity as parliamentary assistant to the minister and so I was not privy, uh, officially at least, to the machinations of what was what was being contemplated by the government. I, I should say that is a, a, a truly important distinction. As a for, sort of former minister's office staff uh, myself, though, if I had the former president of the Ontario Autism Coalition working in party and I were to be thinking through changes, bringing them in the tent might be one of the first things that I would uh, consider doing. One would think... When I resigned as president of the coalition more than a year ago to go to work for Amy, I genuinely believed that the prospects for for fixing the things that remained to be done on the program that, that the liberals developed were exactly in the conservative wheelhouse. They were things like accountability. They were things like solving conflict of interest issues. Those were Those were things that, and keep in mind, I've been I've been a conservative since Bill Davis was premier. Those were things that the conservative party that I knew and loved was very interested in. Rather than address those shortcomings and fix what was wrong, as Jamie said, you know, <laughs> demolish the house. And what we were left with was was just a shockingly small shadow of what had been there. And we'd been working on that for a long time. And it was pretty close to right. Well, I had I had exactly one policy-based meeting with the minister's chief of staff. Oh, yes. Tim, he, Tim Porter? Tim Porter spent more time playing with his BlackBerry than he did actually listening to the, the suggestions I made. And those mm -hmm. suggestions, my son has had an autism diagnosis for 16 and a half years. The coalition is 15 years old. I'm not, I'm not new to this. I spent two years 
on with working with the advisory committee to the to Minister Koto. You know, it's not like I was coming to this Johnny come lately. They they just weren't interested. Now, I now understand hindsight being 2020 that they absolutely didn't care. The setup for what was announced in February, the, the fix was in very shortly after this government was elected. Jamie filed a freedom of information request that yielded results that showed the, the minister's briefing binder was already being worked on in July a year ago. You know, they knew what they were going to do. All of the things that they sent Amy around to do with roundtables and consultations, town hall meetings, it was all completely bogus. Absolutely bogus. They knew what they were going to do. Their minds were made up and there wasn't any shifting it. We were getting inklings of that uh, even before Christmas, that what was coming wasn't going to be terribly good. And the sheer arrogance of the way that they handled it was shocking to me. You know, my wife took over as president of the coalition after I went to work at Queen's Park. She told me, she came home from one meeting with, with Porter in which he, he simply told her, well, it doesn't matter what we do, you people are going to protest anyway. And we're very confident of our communications plan. Well, <laughs> there hadn't been any consultation. I think Jamie and his colleagues in, in Ontaba, the Ontario Association for Behavior Analysis, that's the professional uh, group, they, they were absolutely abused in the process. The minister told them that if they didn't sign on to what she was proposing, they were in for four long years of uh, <laughs> under this government. Yeah. Well, you know, that's that's not a way to deal with, well, frankly, anyone. But yeah. this, is, this is how they did it. And it was the cart before the horse. I, I've, I've used the expression, fire aim ready. You know, they, they, they thought they had this wonderful idea that would solve the wait list, and they absolutely blew it. But that's, you know, that's what I learned once I got there. It was, it was kind of the Keystone Cops, or maybe the Three Stooges. Those are the examples I use because I'm a little older. No, I, and I, I think that's a pattern that we have seen from this government in a, a couple files, especially in the early years, sort of the appearance of a consultation uh, that's like very short and then the rolling out of something that is obviously way too huge to have come out of that consultation. I'm curious because they're, they have uh, now that they have uh, quote unquote gone back to the drawing board on this, they're out consulting about this again. And they're, you know, they've said we, we need a new system by, by next year. Lots of uncertainty around that, that we, we, we've talked about, uh, but they're going back again to be consulting around the province, telephone town halls. And um, I'm curious if any of you have participated in these consultations, um, how are how have they gone? How has the process been? Um, the tone has definitely changed since the cabinet shuffle. Um, we talk a lot about tone, <laughs> you know, even amongst ourselves about how we're not seen as what sycophants, things like that. We're not being called professional protesters and that kind of thing, which is, I <laughs> guess, nice. <laughs> You're not being actively demeaned. That is right. I think that they realized that that was probably not the best way to go against, you know, families and parents of disabled children. It's not a good look. But this listening tour that Minister Smith embarked on was actually just four stops. One of them, the first one, was like a picnic, and that felt more like you were just having a conversation with him, or actually he was just telling you a speech about how he's going to change things, and then nothing really came to that. And the other ones, there was a bit of contention in London. Uh, he didn't like that. And then Ottawa, he went there and they 
the parents there kind of like took over the conversation so that he didn't really have a chance to say, no, we're not talking about that. But as you can see, just like with the telephone town halls and the surveys, that stuff's not out there. You can't access that information. Going forward, they have the panel of the 20 experts in the field, which there's some, you know, people who are not happy about all the people on the panel, but it's over now. But is that stuff going to be available for people to watch and listen to or read? I'd also like to add, I have a note here, actually, that I would have liked to have seen Mr. Smith work with Couteau because he made the old program. And just because you're on different sides of the aisle doesn't mean you can't work together for a program. But we haven't heard that. I've never once heard any minister be like, you know what, I think I will learn from someone who's been here and... Just to add a couple of nuggets to that, if I may, the minister's office has promised that they will release the panel's recommendations. But again, like so many things, when? And we haven't got a fixed or final date for that. The other bit is working with the group that was um, trying to get this right before. Um, I called together a meeting of my colleagues on Minister Koto's advisory team, and we sent a letter to uh, the first minister under this government, which she ignored, but we sent a letter offering our assistance in any way that we could could help out. And keeping in mind that there had been a detailed, in-depth review of all of the considerations over the course of 19 months and well over two dozen meetings, not including the uh, the subcommittees, and we didn't even get a response. She didn't get wow. For the community, that's the most frustrating part. You have so many people, so many organizations that are willing to go to bat for zero dollars. You know, like you have the OAC, the Ontario Autism Coalition, who is all volunteer run, who would go to bat for the government and and sit down and hammer it out. You have Ontaba, who, again, is all volunteers willing to sacrifice their personal time to go in there and work with with the government to make sure we have a, a good plan rolling out. You have so many organizations that are equivalent to that, that are willing and able and have the experience and the knowledge, but none of that was kind of even gone through. Like Bruce said, it was all insults and threats. To me, that kind of showed that they didn't really care about getting it right. They just cared about doing what they thought was getting it right to balance out the budgets. It's It's scary. Just get it off the front page. That was all they cared about. And, and and this is this is the ridiculous part. You know, Doug Ford said during the last election campaign, he said in a in a televised debate that he wouldn't have parents uh protesting on the front lawn. Well, what he got was the largest protest that the Ontario Autism Coalition has ever run. Twelve or thirteen hundred people on the front lawn of Queen's Park at eleven in the morning on a weekday in twelve below weather. Well, Doug, <laughs> <laughs> you know you didn't exactly get what you thought. Didn't uh, did not He's, hit that. One of the things that has continued to shock me as a sort of a person who's been following this issue is it's not like this has a short history. Um, it's not like you can't go back and do a Google search and see the advocacy that has happened around this issue and see that there is a passionate and engaged people, group of people who are willing to volunteer and organize and have a history of doing it successfully. So even if you are, you know, 
reticent or worried about getting into a room with people because you're not sure you have all the answers, you know, you still need to build a consultation process that is going to engender some trust. And uh, it doesn't sound like that is happening. I'm, I'm curious if we can take off, uh, take ourselves out of this particular moment um, in, in Ontario politics for a, a second to close us off today and say, Jamie, earlier in the episode, you mentioned that, you know, the incidence is increasing or the needs are increasing and our understanding of those needs are increasing. I'm curious to, if the house weren't on fire right now, what kinds of things would you be advising a government to consider looking at to actually build a program that would truly support families with children with, uh, with um, autism and special needs? I think first and foremost, you need to look at science, right? There's look at what has been proven mm-hmm. to work in the past. Look at what has specifically scientifically been proven to work uh, and build around that. Look at what was working from from old programs, um, I would absolutely be requesting for professionals to be regulated. I think that is very important to protect taxpayer money, but most importantly, of course, to protect the consumer. There are a lot of people out there who sadly claim to be able to help families li- who live on the spectrum. Uh, and for some new families who may not know any better, they may mm-hmm. think that's true, but the harm that could be caused from fraudulent service providers is it's real and it's great it's it's a very big it's a big potential for harm a real needs based not not this pc needs based program a real needs based program should be implemented one that takes into account progression of course uh, but individual progression no milestones no age caps one that takes into account how the learner is learning how they're developing uh whether or not they they could be transitioned into public services like schools. It's like, again, from the beginning, it's not about dollar signs and dollars on a budget. It's about people's lives. We need to figure out how that one specific individual needs to be helped. Every person on the spectrum is different. Every person on the spectrum has different needs. Everybody's journey is different. So we need to adapt to that journey. We need to Mm -hmm. listen to science. We need to listen to the individual. We need to, work together uh, as a community to help these individuals be successful in whatever it is that they're successful. Can I just pop in there with, with the one word that talks to me loudest about what we would be doing, as you say, Chris, if the house wasn't on fire? Absolutely. Lifespan. You know, Jamie's, Jamie's making excellent points about the science and how evidence-based, proven techniques are going to help people. But we need to think about help in a slightly different way, I think. Someone mm-hmm. once said to me that this is not a, a, a goal-oriented program so much as it's a rehab exercise. And we shouldn't be evaluating our success in terms of how close we get to some arbitrary artificial target as we should. What's the progress that the, the child or the young person or the adult has made versus yesterday, versus last week, last month, last year, and assess ourselves in how much better we are doing than we did then, us Mm -hmm. and the person on the spectrum. That is a way to evaluate it. When the Autism Coalition was founded, we, we were concerned about services for kids. Dalton McGinty had promised and and broke the promise, at least initially, until we organized and made him start to keep it, um, about children's autism services and services in schools. And here we are 15 years later 
dealing with the same issues. Two parties, yeah. three premiers, and and that's and that's still where it's at. And we've got to do better. Three years ago, we had the hashtag autism doesn't end at five because they had that age five cutoff. Yeah. We wanted to bridge that into autism doesn't end at school because the services that are available in schools are not adequate and they vary drastically depending where you are in the province. And then we wanted to point out that autism doesn't end at 18. Employment and housing prospects for, for adults were terrible at supporting adults on the spectrum. And our organization hasn't been able to get there. We haven't been able to get to those things because we're still a decade and a half later arm wrestling over services for kids. How offensive is that? Leah, I want to give you the uh, give you the last word as a as a parent and a, a person who works with um, uh, children with special needs. Um, what do you What do you want to see for the future? I um, I have you know I'm kind of young, so I only just got skin in this game when my son was diagnosed with autism uh, last year. You know where I really was paying attention to the services and supports that he would need as a child and as an adult and looking at how our lives are going to, you know, change. And um, there's a very real fear that, you know, I'm going to keep working and working and working and then someone's going to come in and wipe it all out again. And that's not fair to me as a parent and it's not fair to my child who is already living with such huge barriers to, you know, quality of life. And mm -hmm. if a federal policy could come into play where, you know, we could legislate that this kind of funding has to stay at a certain level, even if there's a new ministry change or party that comes into power, creating a disability strategy, you know, if you don't want to single out just autism, great. Add it all together just so that we're not constantly fear fearful that, oh, now my child's not going to get to learn to put his pants on because the government wants to save some money. And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. I just want to thank Bruce McIntosh, Leah Kochmarek, and Jamie Santana for joining our show today. I found it a really powerful and moving discussion, and I hope you do too. As always, Ontario Loud is myself, Chris Martin, Kate Hammer, Sam Andry, and Alexi White. Uh, we are supported by some amazing volunteers, Aisha Anwar and Harmon Mundy on social. Philip Askew helps produce our episodes. Thank you to them. We will be back next week for our next deep dive on a federal election issue. We are so excited to be getting into the nuts and bolts of how Indigenous policy and truth and reconciliation has been handled by the Trudeau government. It's going to be a big one. I wanted to hit this topic in a real way for a long time, so um, stay tuned for that. Have a comment about what you heard? Find us on OntarioLoudMail at gmail.com or on Twitter at OntarioLoud. Thank you for listening and until next.